Section 6 of Arthur Wing Pinero, Playwright. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Arthur Wing Pinero, Playwright, A Study, by Hamilton Fife, Section 6, Satire. I am not sure whether the term satirical will be held to cover the three plays which I come now to consider. They are, in order of production, The Hobby Horse, Lady Bountiful, and The Princess and the Butterfly. They are certainly not farces, and they are not altogether plays of sentiment. Your sentimental drama must be sentimental with a whole heart with a relish for sentimentality. But in each of these pieces, Mr. Panero is inclined to poke fun at sentiment, to indicate, at all events, that it is an unsafe basis to build upon for life. I think satirical comedy would perhaps best describe the class into which these three plays fall. They may justly be termed comedy, since, in Mr. George Meredith's phrase, they deal with human nature in the drawing-room of civilized men and women, where we have no dust of the struggling outer world, no mire, no violent crashes to make the correctness of the representation convincing. In each of the three, Mr. Panero sought to throw reflections upon social life, the treatment of the characters of Mr. and Mrs. Spencer German and their philanthropic enterprises, of Miss Moxon and Mr. Pinching, of Shattuck and Pews, of Roderick Heron, and the whole tone of the earlier acts of The Princess and the Butterfly justify us in calling them satirical. The hobby horse is, to my mind, a very pleasant, amusing, and interesting piece. Its serious side is treated with a light hand. Its fun is rooted in character and never degenerates into buffoonery. Yet the hobby horse did not at first hit the taste of any large section of playgoers. Some people said it was too serious. Others said it was not serious enough. One party cried out that the author had ruined a fine situation by handling it wittily and with humor. The opposing group declared that they expected to laugh and were made to cry. Herein lies the great merit of the play. The elements of humor and of pathos are so mixed in it as they are mixed in life. The whole plot springs naturally out of the leading motive of the play. Mrs. German's anxiety to work in the East End leads directly both to her acquaintance with Noel Bryce and to the discovery of German's lost son, and upon these threads the imbroglio is woven. Of course, there are more coincidences in the play than one can reconcile with absolute probability. But coincidences only annoy us 
when we feel that the dramatist would have been unable to work out his theme without them. In a piece which shows us such genuine characters as are drawn in The Hobby Horse, we take little heed of the means employed to exhibit and contrast them to the best advantage. Both the Germans are quite real people within limitations, the limitations, to wit, of the author's interest in them. Noel Bryce is a really well-drawn parson of the muscular Christian type, a charming fellow as well as a good man. When he finds that he has let himself think with affection of one whom he mistakenly supposed to be an unmarried woman, we sympathize sincerely with his pain and shame. But he does not sentimentalize over his mistake and his bitter disillusionment. He bears his trouble like a man, and we cannot sentimentalize over him. This affords one reason for the small amount of popularity which the piece won in 1886. The vast majority of playgoers wanted to snuffle, to have their less noble emotions titillated gently, instead of having their finer feelings brought into play, and their mind and heart braced up by the dramatist's sane outlook upon life. By this time, I fancy, the class of theater-goers has been sufficiently leavened by persons of wider culture and keener intelligence to provide as many audiences as would make a play like The Hobby Horse a success instead of a failure. In 1886, the new dramatic movement had scarcely begun so far as England was concerned. Of Ibsen, as yet, only a very few people knew anything at all. With Dumas Fils and Augier and Fouillet, we had scraped a bowing acquaintance, but they dealt so largely in sentiment themselves that they scarcely served as a tonic. They did not greatly encourage us to look at things as they are, and to develop our dramatic ideas inexorably in accordance with the laws of nature and of common life. When we thought of the German drama, we thought of Klopstock and Kotzebue and sentimentality run mad. What the playgoer of 1886 felt, then, with regard to the hobby horse, was that he had been defrauded of the denouement which he had been led to expect. If Noel Bryce, the heroic young clergyman, was allowed to fall in love with Mrs. German, then the unfortunate Mr. German ought to have fallen a victim in the nick of time to the familiar maladie du cinquième act, and the curtain could have come down upon a purpose of marriage. Or, in the alternative course, the audience ought to have been treated to some scene of maudlin tears and sugary-sweet, unmanly lamentation against fate. To send the poor young man about his business with never so much as a single appeal to the lachrymose sensibility of the easily moved, was an unheard-of departure from precedent. 
and yet who can read or hear the last little scene in which Bryce figures without a glistening beneath the eyelids? It is as far away from sentimentality as can be, but it strikes a deep, true note of real emotion. Mrs. German Spencer, you know the mistake that has occurred. Say what you like to me, but beg his pardon, for I can't. Mr. German Mr. Bryce, Mrs. German tells me I am to beg your pardon. I do so. I have married a very foolish, headstrong lady. I beg your pardon. Mrs. German keeps your niece company and assists you in your parish work without my permission. I beg your pardon. In the meantime, you fall in love with my wife, sir, and you ultimately propose marriage to her in my presence. I beg your pardon. Mrs. German Oh, dear, oh, dear, you're not doing it properly. Noel Bryce Mr. German, the tone you speak in spares me the pain of thinking you believe an apology is necessary. As for my mistake, it is slighter than you imagine. Mr. German Slighter? Noel Bryce Yes, sir. The only great mistake possible in proposing marriage is to select an unworthy object. I fell into no such error. I believed Miss Moxon to be a generous, warm-hearted lady whom any man should be proud to call his wife. I thought that, and I think it still. Mr. German But your Miss Moxon is Mrs. German, Mr. Bryce. Noel Bryce, so I find, and upon that I congratulate you with all my heart. Tom Clark, otherwise Alan German, and Bertha, Noel's niece, are the pleasantest pair of boy and girl lovers we can recall out of endless plays in which such characters, borrowed originally from the French, have been held to be necessary. If ever they were tolerable on the stage, it would be in the persons of this breezy young sailor and the charming little person to whom he loses his boyish heart. Tom's explanation of the manner in which he proposes to inform his father of his marriage is delicious in its humor and simplicity. He has just opened his heart to the supposed Miss Moxon, who is really Mrs. German, his stepmother. She questions him about his prospects. Mrs. German. Are you very well off, then? Tom Clark. Haven't a brass button, you know. Mrs. German. Really, Mr. Clark? Tom Clark. But my dear old father is rich. He and I quarrel awfully. Mrs. German. Well, then, how... Tom Clark. Why, the moment I marry, I write and break it gently to the dad. Dear dad, I'm married. Yours, etc. See? Mrs. German. Perfectly. That couldn't be a shock to him, could it? Tom Clark. No. Well, then, what's the result? 
dad burning with anxiety to see my wife. My wife! Oh, doesn't it sound jolly? Mrs. German. It sounds pretty well. Tom Clark. I take her home. I can picture father standing, glum and sulky, at the gate. Who's this? I can hear him saying it. My wife, Dad. Your wife? What, that pretty little fairy? I like your taste, my boy. Come in, we dine at seven. See? Mr. Pinching, the solicitor who always thinks of the right thing to say just a moment too late, is amusing, though cut a little too rigidly to pattern. Miss Moxon has more actuality, and perhaps the author meant her to be not quite a lady. The broken-down jockeys, whom German does his best to reclaim and benefit, are very funny and really not exaggerated. The workmanship of the play is excellent, even above Mr. Pinero's very high level of excellence in this direction. In the last act of Lady Bountiful, I cannot help thinking that the workmanship sank below that level, and to this sinking was partly due the poor success of the play in London. To drop the curtain for a few moments, to indicate the flight of hours, is a permissible device in certain cases. But is this such a case? Here you have Miss Brent, who has long loved and been loved by Dennis Heron, about to marry a worthy but tedious old gentleman. Why has she consented? Dennis has not seemed worthy of a woman's love. Recollect the scene in which he asks her to marry him. Camilla, you've no right to speak to me like this. Dennis, no right? Why, a man doesn't love by right. Camilla, a man should love by right, by the right of some achievement which deserves reward, or some failure which earns consolation. But you, Dennis, I know what you mean. Idle at school, in the wrong set at college, and now, if I started in the race, a boy would beat me. Camilla, to herself. Ah. Dennis, and so I beg your pardon for dreaming you could stoop to pick a weed from the bricks of your stable yard. Camilla, Dennis, it isn't great men women love dearest, or even fortunate men. Often, I tell you, their deepest love goes out to those who labor and fail. But for those who make no effort, who are neither great nor little, who are the nothings of the world, Dennis, who are the Dennis Herons of the world, Camilla, for those a true woman has only one feeling, anger and contempt. Camilla Brent is quite right, right in her opinion, and right in telling her cousin what it is. Stung to action by her plain speaking, he determines to do something for his living. Naturally, he flies to an extreme. He has little aptitude for any of the ordinary pursuits of workaday life. 
but he is thoroughly at home with horses, so he takes a situation as a riding-master. To his genially selfish, worthless, and unprincipled father, whose relationship to the well-known family of the Skimpoles Mr. Panero acknowledged on the playbill, this decision seems little short of madness. Why should they be ashamed of living on Camilla's bounty? Quote, Camilla is wealthy, no credit to her, she can't help it. We are poor, no discredit to us, we can't help it. Camilla has a large house with empty rooms and beds in them. Why on earth shouldn't we occupy those rooms and air those beds? Camilla's cook prepares a dinner for four persons. A dinner for four is a dinner for six. Really, you know, an extra oyster in the oyster sauce or an additional pinch of curry in the mulligatawny represents, looked at in the right way, the extent of our obligations to Camilla. So do, dear Dennis, abandon this crazy desire to earn your own living. It's not even original. So many men have it. And great heavens, you'll compromise us. You really will. If people learn that my son is a cad of a riding master, they'll think I... I've no means, you know. End quote. However, Dennis sticks to his determination and when he finds that the pretty, gentle little daughter of the worthy man he serves has lost her heart to her father's assistant, he feels that he is bound to her in gratitude and honor. So he marries this pretty, gentle little Margaret Veal. This brings us to the end of the second act. In the third act, Margaret dies dies in a scene that is imagined with rare tenderness, written with sympathy and power, a scene that wrings the heart, dies and leaves Dennis free to find the happiness he surrendered in giving up all thought of Camilla. Five years pass before he does find it. In the meantime, he has prospered in America and Camilla has agreed to marry an old admirer. He reaches England on the eve of the wedding, meets Camilla in the village church, asks her to reconsider the answer she gave him six years before, and learns that her troth is plighted to another. Then the momentary curtain parts one day from the next, and we see the church next morning filled with guests and villagers. The bride enters, sees Dennis, who is standing in her path, totters back with her hand to her brow, and murmurs his name. Then the old gentleman sees that his chance has fled, and says, There shall be no marriage today. I think I know. I think I know. It is not the melodrama of this ending that spoils it. It is its ineffectiveness. Often a daring melodramatic touch will help to carry off a situation that is otherwise of the serious order. But here the melodrama falls absolutely flat. 
the lowering of the curtain leads the audience to look for some final scene of an unexpected interesting nature this tame conclusion sends them away disappointed and in their disappointment they forget how good the rest of the play has been mr panero indeed must have forgotten this himself when he wrote such a finish to it the interest has been an interest of character and there is quite enough of it left to carry the drama to its close no coup de theatre was needed only a sincere gathering up of threads in such a manner as the author might have thought most natural but the courage which has supported mr pinero in his desire to make the play depend for its interest upon character deserted him at the end he leans upon the broken reed of a well-worn theatrical device and lo it breaks in his hand the repetition of the letter trick too is a trifle lacking in ingenuity dennis finds a letter and learns that margaret loves him another letter which falls into his hands by chance tells him that margaret before she died foresaw that he and camilla would come together in the end in a drama of action of violent emotions of scenes that carry the spectator irresistibly with them in a gust of passion almost any expedient for arriving at the necessary juxtapositions of character will pass muster but lady bountiful is a play so slight in texture that its theme demands all the vraisemblance possible in treatment Quote, my masters will you hear a simple tale no war no lust not a commandment broke by sir or madam but a history to make a rhyme to speed a young maid's hour End quote. so the author himself described it and some critics have found here the reason for its failure to attract audiences the kind of play these critics call it of which everyone approves in theory and from which they unanimously stop away in practice there is a good deal of truth in this view we english do undoubtedly try to make each other and even try to make ourselves believe that we are more strictly moral and fonder of conventional virtue than we should be found if our hearts could be surprised and set in shop windows we could never bring ourselves as a nation to confess that we accepted anything lower than the standards of the highest morality charrier in les effrontes excuses his philosophy of life thus quote, mon dieu je sais bien que ce n'est pas la morale de l'évangile mais c'est celle du monde End quote. that is the french view of the case we prefer to practice la morale du monde while we profess loudly all the time that we are trying to live up to l'évangile perhaps a good many of us are trying 
but the fact remains that very few succeed. At the same time, numbers of plays have succeeded which were equally qualified with Lady Bountiful to speed a young maid's hour. Liberty Hall, for example, and One Summer's Day, and A Pair of Spectacles, and The Popular Little Minister. I look for the reasons of Lady Bountiful's small success rather in the fact that it tried to combine two kinds of play in one, that it fell between two stools. In a play of character, the dramatist must devote himself entirely to the few characters which he seeks to exhibit. He does not want subsidiary personages to fill up gaps or striking episodes to clear up situations. There are three or four personages in Lady Bountiful who would be better out of the way. They contribute no variations to the real theme, and the space which their removal would release could have been used by Mr. Pinero in making clearer the characters of Dennis and Camilla. We could then have had more of Roderick Heron, too, who was well worth more elaboration and a more intimate connection with the thread of the story. As it is, he disappears after the third act, and all we hear of him is that in America he has revealed capabilities hardly suspected in England, and is doing rather well, which, of course, we do not for an instant believe. The Skimpole family remains Skimpole's to the end. In a play of sentiment, on the other hand, the whole thing may be as unreal as the playwright pleases. He may bring in characters simply for the sake of extracting an extra tear, invent the unlikeliest episodes merely in order to pile up the agony, break all the rules of drama and probability, so he is rewarded by the facile sob, the guerdon of how pretty or how sweet. Lady Bountiful is not a play of sentiment, nor altogether a play of character. It did not appeal sufficiently to the admirers of either of these classes of peace to win their wholehearted adherence nor did it offer a mixture of styles so bizarre as to please the large body of playgoers who seek ever some new thing. Its elements were not so lively in themselves as to gain applause for their own sake. Therefore, like many another experiment, it failed. The Princess and the Butterfly mixed up almost equally sentiment and character. It defied tradition, it outraged the accepted canons of form and symmetry, its originality even hurled itself against the salutary barriers of common sense. But, unlike Lady Bountiful, this play had separate elements which gave it a vogue. The first three acts are occupied with exposition. They have little interest in themselves and the scene with the boys in the Saint Roche's smoking-room is tiresome, 
and only serves a far-off dramatic purpose. Yet the attention of the spectator is held, not firmly, it is true, but with a gentle grip which seems to herald developments of the gradually unfolding plot. In the fourth act, better late than never, these developments are reached, and from this point until the end, the play is of a charm and an interest that have not been surpassed in any of Mr. Panero's works before or since. The ostensible subject of the drama is the malady of middle age. Both the Princess Pannonia and Sir George Lamarant have reached this period of life. Both feel that they have tasted the best that existence has to offer, and that the future lies before them joyless and unexciting. This is chiefly because they have never had anything to do but amuse themselves, because they have never really come to grips with life, have never suffered, and have never loved. They almost make up their minds to end their long platonic affection, their perfunctory flirtation of so many years, by a marriage which shall enable them to drift quietly into old age, holding each other's hands, not with the close grip of passion, but with the gentle clasp of a moderate tenderness, based partly on convenience and partly upon mutual esteem. Sir George Well, suppose you and I became husband and wife. I am sufficiently your senior. You are rich. I am far from the state of a beggar. The world could not throw up its hands in surprise. Would it not be in all ways a suitable match? We both suffer morbidly, fantastically it may be, but we suffer. Should we not find in each other a cure? You dread being tempted to marry unwisely. No such temptation, I believe, is likely to befall me. But at any rate, your honoring me as I propose would make both safe. The Princess Safe Sir George What do you say? The Princess, her eyes closed. We should not naturally love each other. Sir George at our age, I suppose there is no love but in folly. She makes a movement. Forgive me. The expression, our time of life, was your own. She assents by a nod. I speak, of course, of passionate love. Otherwise, am I quite outside the reach of your tender regard? As for passion... Let us make ourselves believe that we could not be five-and-twenty if we could. Passion. My dear Laura, has it ever happened to you to stroll through a garden on the morning following a great letting off of fireworks? Oh, the hollow, blackened shells of the spent cartridges trodden into the turf. We should at least be spared the contemplation of that. But you and I are already fast linked by many associations, and sympathy is affection. 
certainly in that spirit, I love you most sincerely. The Princess, in a strange voice, Say three times you love me. Sir George, puzzled. Three times? The Princess, I love you thrice. Sir George, as if repeating a lesson. I love you, I love you, I love you. She throws her head back and breaks into a peal of hysterical laughter. What reason has the princess for this strange request? Simply that a few minutes earlier she has heard such a triple declaration of love from the fervent lips of a young man really in love with her. She has won the heart of the preternaturally grave Edward Oriel, and his habitual reserve has broken down before the flood tide of his emotion. Fear of ridicule hinders her admission that she loves Oriel, and she strives to persuade herself that she must accept Sir George's lukewarm proposal. But before the passing of the month for which she has bargained with each of her suitors, Sir George's heart is also engaged in earnest. He has taken under his protection, almost adopted, an Italian girl whom he believes to be his brother's child. She is a wayward, charming creature with a very tender heart hidden beneath her gaiety and mischief. When he discovers first that she is not his brother's child and next that she has learnt to love him, he very quickly passes from affection to adoration. He and the princess make an effort to clinch their half-concluded bargain, but it fails, and they each take up their newly found happiness to the tune of a Hungarian march called A Zerolim Mindig If You Maraud, which, according to Mr. Panero, means Love is Ever Young. Unquestionably, the last two acts of The Princess and the Butterfly are fashioned with a skill compelling admiration and touched with a certain charm that prevents us from analyzing too closely the kind of happiness which The Princess and the Butterfly have found. At the moment, we accept our author's conclusion. The strains of the march ring in our ears, the glamour of romantic attachment dazzles our eyes. Yes, we cry, love is ever young. It can bring a fresh interest and a vivifying tempest of emotion even into the lives of the jaded victims of society, men and women who have done nothing in the world but eddy about here and there, eat and drink, chatter without even the stimulus of love or hate, without striving, though it be but blindly, towards any aim. But when you think it over quietly, as one should think over any play that pretends to offer us sincere criticism upon life, you have an uncomfortable suspicion, not only that the world would write the Princess Pannonia and Sir George Lamarant down as foolish people, 
but that the world would probably be right. For on what basis have they founded their determination to defy the opinion of the world? So far as we can judge, upon the fugitive attraction of sex. Now marriages of men and women of tolerably equal age and of tolerably common tastes may be based upon this attraction with every hope of success. It is, after all, the natural basis. Even when its first fine, careless rapture has waned, the leaping flames of the fresh-lit bonfire are succeeded by a steady glow which gives out more warmth and comfort. But a marked disparity of age and a striking dissimilarity of taste and inclination are seldom, very seldom, blended into harmony at the bidding of passion. They are stubborn bars of iron which cannot be permanently fused by the mere white heat of a sudden infatuation. If Mr. Panero had shown us that there was more than infatuation in the loves of his strangely assorted lovers, his conclusion would possibly bear the test of reflection. If he had put the whole story of their loves upon a higher plane, and hinted to us that it is never too late to hope that we may come upon the key to life's puzzle, he would have given us a poetic and a satisfying thought to take away with us. Quote, Only, but this is rare, when a beloved hand is laid in ours, when, jaded with the rush and glare of the interminable hours, our eyes can in another's eyes read clear when our world-deafened ear is by the tones of a loved voice caressed a bolt is shot back somewhere in our breast and a lost pulse of feeling stirs again the eye sinks inward and the heart lies plain and what we mean we say and what we would, we know. A man becomes aware of his life's flow and hears its winding murmur, and he sees the meadows where it glides, the sun, the breeze, and there arrives a lull in the hot race wherein he doth forever chase that flying and elusive shadow, rest. An air of coolness plays upon his face, and an unwanted calm pervades his breast, and then he thinks he knows the hills where his life rose and the sea where it goes. End quote. No one expects Mr. Panero to be a Matthew Arnold, but there in those beautiful lines of Matthew Arnold is a subject that a playwright of poetic feeling might well essay. A true and tender devotion must always help to make the path of life plainer, to clear up the mists that gather round the wayfarer, to show that there is a definite plan of existence which perhaps he has before never suspected. We may analyze this devotion as we will. 
we may take the calm considered view of gibbon who understood by the passion of love the union of desire friendship and tenderness which is inflamed by a single female which prefers her to the rest of her sex and which seeks her possession as the supreme or the sole happiness of our being or we may incline to a more mystical transcendental view but however we regard it we can only reason deductively from its manifestations and here is the dramatist's opportunity mr pinero had such an opportunity in the princess and the butterfly but he hardly made the most of it it scarcely seems to have possessed much interest for him if it had he would surely have given us more of an insight into the characters of the princess and sir george and also of edward oriel and fay zuliani but he only elaborates those characters just enough for the purposes of the play this is his way in all his plays with the exception of iris and the second mrs tanqueray there he does appear to have been genuinely interested in the problems of character that lay before him in all the other plays he gives his creations only just enough individuality to be effective on the stage to serve the ends of his dramatic scheme they are so cleverly presented that they leave the impression of real characters but they are as a rule not more than half characters the author does not turn the light of his revealing lantern all round them upon every side of their personality in turn but only upon the one or two sides that will be useful to him in other words mr pinero does not pursue character for the sake of character but for the sake of making stage plays he does not take a handful of people and let them work out their own destinies he is not so much the observer the recorder as the puller of strings he plays with his characters as you play with chessmen moving them here and there wherever he sees the opportunity for an effective combination the combinations he makes are immensely effective but they cannot in the nature of things produce upon the spectator who looks closely into them the effect of an unconstrained sincerity like dr ibsen mr pinero is a master of theatrical craft and if he had the same interest in the things of the mind that inspires dr ibsen he might have gained an equal reputation as a philosopher without any more deserving it than dr ibsen deserves his fame a genuine philosopher who wrote plays would have to be very emphatically un philosophe sans la savoir but a dramatist who has the gift of fashioning his dramas with a complete knowledge of stage effects and how to produce them 
and who further is sincerely interested in the particular questions of mind and morals which occupy his age can easily win the name of a philosopher mr panero may indeed win it yet if our playwrights would make a close study for a year of the modern french drama since about eighteen sixty and of the serious german drama during the last ten years i believe they would see the advantage of dealing in a sincere spirit with the manners and problems of their time and if they could at the same time preserve their english sense of humor they would probably end by writing much better plays than either the germans or the french End of section six